Welcome back to the Mothers with Fourth Degree Tears podcast, where you will hear firsthand stories from mothers who experienced fourth degree tears in childbirth and hear from the professionals who work with them. My name is Laura Fry and I'm your host. I am the founder of the Fourth Degree Tear Support Group on Facebook and a patient advocate for women with severe tearing in childbirth. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Alyssa in Kansas who is going to tell us the story of her fourth degree tear. She also happens to be a nurse, um, so it's always fun to talk to someone who has the medical point of view also. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Alyssa. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, do you want to just go into telling us a bit about your birth story? Sure. Um, I will go ahead and talk about my pregnancy a little bit. Um, my pregnancy was pretty normal for the most part. Um, I developed high blood pressure towards the end, um, around 30 weeks. So, um, towards the end of my pregnancy, it was decided that I was going to be induced at 37 weeks. Um, and that was, if I made it to that point, um, we had a couple scares where, um, they thought I was going to need to be induced. So they would send me to labor and delivery, but each time my blood pressure came down. So, um, the plan was just to have me induced at 37 weeks exactly. Um, so I went in for my induction and everything was pretty much going as planned. Um, I was already dilated. So my odds of like a successful vaginal delivery were pretty good. Um, and they went ahead and started me on Pitocin. They broke my water Um, I got my epidural after that and, um, I labored for a couple hours. Um, and then I was like almost fully dilated. Um, that is when my baby Jonah started to be a little bit ornery. Um, I don't ever really remember a time where he looked great on the monitor, but it was just kind of progressively getting worse. Um, he was having, um, some late decelerations, which, basically means um, when you have a contraction, his heart rate dropped, but his heart rate didn't come up right away. So um, there was some talk about a C-section, but my OB didn't really want to do that because she would have had to push him up in order to do a C-section, which has a lot of risks for the baby. So um, I just kind of agreed um, to not do a C-section unless like worst case scenario, like if his heart rate dropped, wouldn't come up or something like that in an emergency, then we would do that. So I was almost fully dilated. Um, they turned down my epidural because, um, I really wasn't having enough feeling to even push well. So they waited a little bit, maybe like 30 minutes to an hour, came back. I was fully dilated. So it was time to push. And I want to say I tried to push about 30 minutes by myself. But um, one thing that just kind of like held me back a lot was just like the lack of modesty (laughs) that you have during (laughs) this. Um, I had my husband, my (laughs) mother-in-law, and um, one of my friends in there. And then on top of that, there were like a couple nurses, my doctor, 
a couple of residents and then there were just kind of people in and out the whole time so yeah it was pretty like like modesty was kind of out the window and I just had like all those fears but I knew like I had to just get it together so so um after I kind of got past to the lack of modesty and everything um I started pushing and from what I was told I was pushing really well um I was in so much pain because basically I didn't have an epidural at this point and I think that really got me to push well Um, and then we had pushed for a little bit and just we weren't making a whole lot of progress so um, my OB said it was time to try a vacuum and I got three pushes with that and if he was not born after that then I was going to be going back for a c-section um so he was actually born on the fourth push hmm. and um I wasn't really like they had told me three pushes and then I wasn't really expecting it so it was kind of a weird feeling um that was probably the most painful part of the whole experience was actually him being born and I don't know whether I actually felt the terror or if it was just all the pain I had in my abdomen from that um but he was born and um there was kind of a pause but then I saw his feet kick so I knew he was okay um and then they put him up to me and I think at this point there were probably like five to ten like nurses doctors in the room residents and everything um and I heard her say like Jonah did better than you and she said this a couple times but I never really understood exactly what she was meaning um and then obviously later I found out um and then my other clue was I told my husband at least I didn't have to have a c-section which now looking back I'm like I hate that I said that Mm. but she was like no um this is worse than a c-section you would have definitely rather a c-section but um, they never really told me how bad my tear was until like, w- like hours later. So I just kind of assumed that I probably tore, but I didn't really realize how bad it was. Um, and this is kind of when things just kind of like started changing. Um, I was holding Jonah and everything was fine for a couple minutes. And I want to say it was around the time I delivered the placenta is when like things started changing um I remember I said I was nauseous and like my OB completely switched gears and she's like kind of they put oxygen on me and then they put me back in Trendelenburg which is um like it's a position they use for shock um when somebody's going into shock and so I kind of knew things were not right and then I looked over at the um, monitor and I saw what my blood pressure my heart rate was and I immediately knew um, but I figured I figured it was just them like being safe but um, this kind of went on for a couple hours and I was basically hemorrhaging and I was losing a lot of blood but I never actually saw any of the blood so it didn't really seem real to me I guess um, but it went on um they just kept bolusing me with fluids and I would feel better and then I would feel worse. Um, and then 
um, there was one point where my OB finally had a nurse take Jonah and that was probably only just a couple minutes after he was born. So we never really got that like first bonding experience past like the first minute or two. So um, that kind of went on for a little bit. And then, um, I mean, they were giving me a lot of medications to keep my blood pressure up. And then it was around three hours later is when my repair was finally done. Um, and she finally told me that I had sworn to the fourth degree. Um, and then I ended up needing three blood transfusions. Um, and then I was as swollen as an elephant and not exaggerating with that at all. So they had to um, also give me Lasix to help get that fluid off and like for like a week after everything. So it was definitely crazy. Yeah. And I assume all of that fluid was because they were giving you so much fluid while you were hemorrhaging. That's why you. Yeah. Yeah. They gave me probably, I would say like eight to 10 liters of fluid between my, just like being in labor and then the delivery and then the blood transfusions. And I remember when they were like bullishing me with the fluid, I kept telling them like my eyes feel like they're swelling shut and they were (laughs) Um, in the pictures that I have after I don't really have any good pictures because all the pictures I was so swollen and I just refused to take pictures because of how swollen I was and the days after so yeah it was one of my bigger complaints on top of the fourth degree tear was uh, all the fluid I had afterwards how was your recovery then like those first few days um so they gave me I know a lot of moms got this and it's similar to a walking epidural it's called duramorph and it's something they put through your epidural and they use it for c-sections and it kind of like helps take the edge off in the first day and they did this for the first two to three days and so Mm -hmm. I actually kept my epidural the first day stayed in labor and delivery so they could give it to me the next day and they That's say, nice. that, yeah, um, I don't think I've heard of anyone having that after their first year. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a walking epidural. They give it to all the C-section moms, but I couldn't really tell much of a difference um, between like having it and not having it. But mm-hmm. basically it de- decreases the need for like IV pain medicine. So I was right. like IV pain medicine. I did that. And then they had um, Percocet um, as well and I never took that like I I had more of it available than I used basically but um, I got up um, the morning after so I gave birth at 8.55 my repair was done at 12 and then I got up at 7 or 8 the next morning mm-hmm. um, because my son went to the NICU and um, I wanted to go see him I didn't want him to be alone and so pretty much right as they took him, I was like asking the doctors when I could go. And of course, my doctor was looking at me like I was crazy, but um, I did get up and I went um, and that was before I had all the blood transfusions. So um, that was the initial like getting up it was extremely painful, but um, it really, it got better each time I got up. Um, 
And I just tried to stay as active as I could because I knew that that would help me in the long run. And I think it really did. Um, I was, when I got discharged, I probably should have taken it slower than I did, but I was, you know, going up and down stairs. I was walking in the hospital within like the first couple of days. So um, it probably helped me in the long run, but I probably should have taken it a lot easier than I did, but I never felt like I really had a choice. So yeah because of your son being in the NICU yeah yeah Yeah. I just never really there was never a moment where I could feel sorry for myself because of what was going on with him yeah did you want to talk about um him at all and you know kind of the health problems that he had in the beginning then I'm sure so he was born exactly at 37 weeks and And so a NICU stay never even crossed my mind. I saw it as he was full term, he would be fine. Um, And that's just not how things were. And I don't know whether it was the birth that set him off or um, just difficult transitioning, but he was born and then he was um, like perfectly healthy at birth. And then um, I want to say probably like, Within six hours of me giving birth, we kind of started noticing things. He was having low blood sugar, which I felt partially was because he did not get fed in the first hour. And it was probably closer to two to three hours after birth is when they had me feed him, but they were still repairing me at the time. So it was just a difficult situation. And so he had that. And then, um, He also started having respiratory issues. Um, He started grunting um, and then he was desatting. So um, like his oxygen was low and they kept checking him and um, it was just too low. I knew he needed to go to the NICU um, very early on, but I was like, you know, the nurses will do what's best. And he ended up, we switched nurses um, in the morning and then the nurse that came on ended up getting him transferred to the NICU. So he, um, they said that the hypoglycemia might be from um, being like gestational diabetes, but my doctor said I really didn't even have true gestational diabetes. It was kind of like a borderline or it could have been him being 37 weeks. Um, And so basically he just had difficulty transitioning um, to the world and everything was pretty minor in the beginning. Um, he was on a little bit of oxygen and he needed a dextrose drip for his blood sugar. And then he was under the lights for a little bit, but then, um, they actually gave him a bloodstream infection through his, um, line that was placed. So that turned his two to three day stay into a 12 day stay. So, Um, and it got, things got a lot more serious when he got that infection. So. Yeah. I remember reading in your story that for a while there, you kind of felt like it was, um, the infection was your fault. Yes. Um, So the doctors in the NICU initially were working him up for um, HSV meningitis, which is from a lot of people like on social media, you'll see about like cold sores or like genital herpes. And I saw my doctor in the hall and I just mentioned um, to her what was going on with him. And 
Um, I think she was just trying to make sure it wasn't anything um, due to the pregnancy. And she kind of talked to them and she's like, this isn't an HSV thing because I don't have that to begin with. Mm-hmm. She's like, everybody has cold source and you don't get HSV from that. So um, she talked to them and then she really kind of just like eased my mind because I really thought it was my fault that whole time. Mm-hmm. I had myself convinced that it was HSV or something because mm-hmm. um, I do get cold sores, but I don't have HSV or anything. Yeah. Coaster. <laughs> yeah that's really nice that you're you know that your doctor eased your mind um yeah because that can just make you feel terrible on top of everything else that you're already going through is to blame yourself for it you know yeah definitely I I, I had that in my mind for probably the first week that he was in the NICU and then I think after we talked that's when I was like okay this isn't my fault and I, yeah. my initial gut was that um, it was the infection was coming from the line. That was my initial thought. And me and my mother-in-law both said that, but somehow they had me convinced otherwise. So yeah. it was nice hearing it from a doctor, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you ended up. Um, did you want to talk about, I know you had a little bit of a complication. What was that just a couple of months ago? Um, so basically, um, I think this is how it started. I was about two to three weeks out and I thought maybe I was getting an infection, um, because I had some discharge that didn't really seem normal, but it was also one of those things that could be just normal pregnancy discharge that you get after birth after you stop bleeding mm-hmm. and so I wasn't sure and I had an appointment at two weeks so I mentioned it I was like not really sure and she looked at it and she's like it looks like it doesn't look bad but you know if you're noticing these symptoms and then there was a little bit of tenderness she's like there probably is an infection so she gave me um, antibiotics to start and I was on those for five or six days and then I started spiking a fever and I'm like well this is weird because I've been on the antibiotics enough days that they should have cleared up by now or I shouldn't I at least should not be running a fever and so I called the nurse they had me go to the ER and um, the ER doctor actually um, wanted to admit me to the hospital for antibiotics um, they weren't really sure if the infection was from the tear or if it was from something else. Um, so I was on antibiotics for a day and then I went home the next day. But the whole time they were kind of like, oh, you know, it looks really good. I don't think there's an infection. But it was kind of like, well, why am I running the fevers if there's not an infection? Um, and they had kind of ruled out like any other secondary infection. So And I went home on that new antibiotic and and everything was hunky and dory. And and then gradually I had been noticing symptoms of um, gas coming through the wrong place. And I just kind of wanted to make sure that I didn't have a fistula. I didn't think I did, but um, I would rather kind of get worked up for it and be wrong than to miss (laughs) it and right <laughs> have things go badly 
further down the road. So um, it, I, I noticed it probably around my six week check and I never really said anything because I wasn't sure. And then finally I was like, okay, I'm going to make an appointment. So I did. And this was, I was six months out by this point. And my doctor's like, yeah, I really think you have a fistula. She said she was 99% sure and she's not been wrong yet. So I was like, all right. So she sent me to a urogynecologist and they um, did an exam under anesthesia and found it wasn't necessarily a fistula, but it's like a fistula that doesn't go all the way through. So um, they repaired it. It was super small and minor and the recovery was like one day and I was fine after that and um kind of felt like after that I could kind of finally maybe work at moving on and moving forward um so and the urogynecologist he was really nice and um I really don't have any complaints about that so yeah yeah I understand the the mental toll that it takes um yeah even if you end up not having a fistula, just kind of the fear of one is always there until you get confirmation. Yeah. yeah. So I can understand what you mean by moving on. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I'm a nurse and I've talked to my other nurse friends about fistulas and they're like, yeah, you need to get that fixed like as soon as possible. Like, because <laughs> my doctor said it literally just leads to incontinence. Like you might not have it now, but after mm-hmm. a few years you will. So, and I've been incontinent free. So I'm like, I need to do everything possible to keep it that way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And they did say that um, the gas thing was just probably from um, the damage to my pelvic floor. Um, And I do know that I do have a weak pelvic floor. So I think it comes from that and it hasn't gone away. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, yeah, and you mentioned that you are a nurse and this Mm -hmm. whole experience, um, has kind of changed your interest in what you want to do. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, in some ways, um, I always had an interest in OB, but I, it's been more so timing hasn't been right. And so, um, I really kind of have a big interest in like the postpartum journey, Um, And obviously limiting like these problems as much as possible, because I would hate for anybody to have to go through this. Um, But I recently kind of switched and now I'm doing um, mostly postpartum, but um, they're going to train me to do labors as well. So, yeah. How has that been so far? Um, It's been really good. Um, it's kind of been an eye opener because I see um, what a normal delivery looks like and mm-hmm. a normal recovery. And I'm like, it kind of like what after I gave birth, I, for some crazy reason, I was just worried that um, I was being a baby or something. And <laughs> it makes me realize how strong I was through it all because I really kept my composure through everything. Um, and I know it's easy to lose that when you're in labor and and a lot of pain afterwards as well. So, yeah. 
have you um have you seen any other bad tears or anything since you've switched no and the hospital I work at they have more um midwife led care Mm -hmm. Um, so the midwives do all the like injections and deliveries and the doctors basically just show up if there's a problem um or like a complication or if the patient needs a c-section but um there's a lot of things I could probably go on for days about but they do not use forceps at all and they will do a c-section before using forceps um, and I've worked there for a couple months now and I've only had one patient have a vacuum delivery. Um, everything else is, um, just natural. Um, they don't, it seems like they would rather do a C-section over a vacuum or a forcep delivery is what I've noticed. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's nice. Um, most of the people don't even tear. Um, every once in a while it'll be a first or a second, but I want to say most of them don't even care. Wow. Really? <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, it's a smaller hospital, so they don't do a lot, like a large number of deliveries or anything, but, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing to me. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. I really, apparently a fourth degree tear is very rare. And one of the nurses that I've been working with, she's worked there for 20 years and she said she's never seen a fourth degree. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. That's almost unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Nice. And they do a lot. Um, actually, all the deliveries I've actually been in there for have been hands and knees deliveries. And they do it with uh-huh. people that have epidurals too. That's what I found really mm. amazing. Like... Hmm. Yeah, so it's a lot harder to give the baby to mom because you have to go under them. But yeah, um, yeah, they they do a, di- a lot of different strategies before um, trying like a vacuum, forceps, or a C-section. Yeah, sounds like whatever they are doing is working well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Um. And did you want to talk about um, that conference that's coming up in January and just kind of how you got, you know, how you found out about it and your interest in it and, you know, why you want to share your story and things like that? Sure. So um, the, um, one of the ladies that was kind of like seeking um, like assistant, she just messaged me um, and was asking. They were looking for like personal stories. Um, they wanted somebody to actually be able to go to California, but I live in Kansas, so obviously that's not realistic for me. So I told her I could do like record my story and maybe they could play it. And um, that's what we're planning on doing. I've actually already recorded most of it. Um, but it's actually a conference that's specifically for health professionals and, and, and like birthing professionals. And I think they just kind of want to hear what a fourth degree tear recovery looks like from the mental aspect and the physical aspect. So I'm hoping that my story um, helps maybe bring awareness to the medical providers um, and everything. So. Nice. 
how has it been um, recording that? You know, how has it felt telling your story? Um, it's good. I, um, I guess it's just like, I look back and I just can't believe I went through all of that. <laughs> and that my yeah. baby went through all of that. So um, it feels good that even though something so bad happened, um, something good can come out of it. And maybe mm-hmm. we can help change um, care that women get because my story really wasn't like I mean it was devastating but the care that I got wasn't really devastating like I had a really mm-hmm. good OB I had a really good care so um, I just feel so bad for moms that um, didn't get that yeah that can be you know something really important to highlight that you know this is the care I got and this is the care that everyone should receive and highlight you know the things that they did well um yeah there's a lot to learn from that also you know not just kind of the stories where things went wrong and (laughs) pointing out everything that they did wrong so yeah yeah I think so there's definitely even like the best cases these bad tears they're still gonna happen and I think it's all about like um in that moment do they receive the right care? Um, is there mm-hmm. somebody there to do a good repair and um, make sure that the woman isn't going to be left with um, lifelong incontinence and surgeries and everything? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The education piece to educating the woman. Um, yeah. About everything that's entailed and how to take care of it well. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any advice that you would give to someone who is maybe early on in their recovery? My main thing is like in the early days, it seems like it's never going to get better and the pain is never going to go away, but it eventually does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Try to stay positive. <laughs> yeah. And I think we really need to like break the stigma about it. Like talk to your girlfriends about it. You know, that type of stuff. Everybody's like afraid to talk about it, but it happens. And I feel like I keep meeting people that it's happened to. So Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to talk about it, I guess. Right. That's so true. Yeah. I've kind of come to that conclusion also. (laughs) The more that I'm willing to talk about it now, um, more kind of publicly, the more people reach out to me about it. And it's, yeah, it's almost as as much as we hear that they're so rare, um, it's amazing how many people you end up knowing in real life. It's it's almost like statistically impossible to know this many people. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, and I know that when it comes to the statistics, I figured out through my job that the fourth degree tears that are not diagnosed at birth are not recorded on mm-hmm. the statistics. So I don't know right. people know that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that adds a few to the statistics. Right. Yeah, that's definitely kind of been a theory of mine that that has to be the case. That is (laughs) the case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's good to get confirmation on that. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you for being one who will talk about it. (laughs) Um, I know it'll, yeah, it'll help other people be more, yeah just feel not as alone and know that there are other people out there so thank you yes no problem yeah 
I think it's also nice to know that there are nurses out there who have gone through it. So I'm sure it will help if you ever do come across a patient who has, you know, that has to deal with it. It'll be nice to have someone who's gone through it and who truly understands because as we know in the support group, no one really understands unless they've actually gone through it. So Yes, definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mothers with Fourth Degree Tears podcast. If you have any comments or questions or if you would be interested in being a guest on our show, please email me at motherswithfourthdegreetears at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you.